0: morning as well, we turn to the Gospel of Matthew, that's where we'll be. We were in this chapter about a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we'll be meditating on this passage again this morning, and Lord willing this evening, and then Lord willing in other occasions as well. Uh, these are difficult days, days of trial and testing, days also in which we, we do wonder what is happening in our world and in the light of all that we're seeing days in which we ask really how near is the return of the Lord. We cannot set dates, times and seasons are not for us but we must be prepared and so We have plunged into this chapter just for that reason. Because this is uh, certainly a major chapter in scriptures concerning the return of our Lord. We have already seen many things and I trust the Lord will show us more this morning. Um, As we read, especially concentrating on verses 4 on, we noticed how the disciples are very concerned about the when of things. When, verse 3, tell us when and tell us the sign. The timing and the signs. Ah, that's very human. They will do that again in Acts chapter 1. Uh, tell us, is it now that you will reestablish uh, the kingdom in Israel? And in both circumstances, the Lord uh, does not answer their question and actually reprimands them for their human curiosity and tendency, saying, essentially, these are not the things you need to worry about when it comes to my return and my kingdom. What are the things that they are to really be concerned about? Well, he spells them out in this passage. Take heed, he says in verse 4, that no one deceives you. So, immediately he lets them know that uh, things concerning his return are to be taken very carefully because they can be easily turned into instruments of deception eschatology is very susceptible to all sorts of distortions so we need to be very careful when it comes to this subject in scripture why are we to take heed lest no one deceives us for many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and will deceive many Uh, as we read further on I'm referring to verses 9, verses 10, verse 11, Uh, look at verse 10, many will be offended, many professing Christians will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness, lawlessness will abound the love of many professing christians will grow cold and and you know further on he comes back to speak of the condition of christianity at the time of his return which subject really seems to take most of what the lord says which is already something to be concerned about because when we think of the so-called end of the world and the Lord's return it's has got a logical things we tend to think of just that the the world will will grow more evil and evil and evil and evil in our eyes and the eyes of Christianity even as we study these things through the centuries have been more focused on the degeneration of the world whereas the Lord really speaks quite abundantly here about the degeneration of Christianity he begins Not not only this is the main thing that he speaks of here, how Christianity will degenerate by the time he returns, but he mentions this first of all. He will speak of wars and rumors of wars and violence and destruction and kingdom against kingdom and nation upon nation. He will mention earthquakes and pestilences and, and uh, famines and all of that. But first of all, and most of all, he speaks of degenerating Christianity. Almost the whole passage is concerned with that. Which strikes us as something surprising because we're so um, bent on talking about the how the world will degenerate to the utmost by the time the Lord will return that we miss what the main message of the Lord that. Christianity, by the time he returns, will not be a house of safety. It will not be a place where you can say if i 'm just belong to a church, everything will be okay. <laughs> if I will, will hold to some Christian profession, that will be okay. Well, no, the Lord says, and he emphatically repeats it, there will be a lot of deception among Christian professing Christian towards the very end of this world 's history. Um, in fact, we have noticed how um, in verse 36 onward, he says this, "...of that day and hour no one knows, No no, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be." For as in the days of Noah, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came, and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be." Uh, The Lord here speaks of the condition of humanity at the time of Noah. Uh, a humanity that was completely indifferent to the message of conversion and repentance and faith as was preached by Noah at the time as humanity will be uh, just as indifferent to the message of salvation and judgment that the remnant the remnant will be proclaiming us in the very very last days Uh, The Lord makes this connection between His return and what happened in the time of Noah. And we noticed also when we were together that He makes the same connection. Uh, The scripture makes the same connection in 2 Peter chapter 3. Because also Peter, as he speaks of the last days, he speaks of... uh, The world, as it was then destroyed by the flood through water, is being preserved to be destroyed through fire. So Peter 2 makes the connection between the return of Christ and what happened, the judgment that will take place in the return of Christ, and the judgment that took place in the time of Noah. And because he makes the connection, then we must be mindful of this connection and connect, connect. What are the parallels that we can find between Matthew 24 and Genesis 6? Well, we have already gone there, but we go again. Genesis 6. uh, And of course, Genesis 6 does speak of a uh, degenerating world. Verse 3 The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with men forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, that speaks of the total depravity of the complete moral spiritual degeneration uh, that happened at that time, as the world was getting further and further away from God. So much so that we already read in verse 11, the earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. Verse 13, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. See that? The end. The end. Also Matthew 4 speaks of the end. The end comes where, when everything degenerates. For the earth is filled, has reached the culmination of evil. It's filled with violence through men, because of men. So behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So, undoubtedly here, the scripture reminds us of the state of mankind as it degenerated to the utmost uh just before God destroyed it in judgment. But we must not lose sight of the first two verses. (laughs) Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, um, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose." what is what what is this about? <laughs> well, some have interpreted as if here a reference is made to wicked angels have uh, have united with women and produced a a sort of a hybrid type of man so called the giants uh, I don't believe that's a good interpretation of scripture um, angels. Sexual beings—they, they they don't have sexual organs. They're neither male or females. Uh, Angels, whether good or bad, uh, are of a different species altogether. Um, There are many many reasons why that would be a bad interpretation of scripture. If we just look at the context instead, what we notice is that the two preceding chapters speak of two seeds, of two line of descendancy. One that comes through Cain, and if we're reading chapter 4, uh, especially uh, from verses 16 on down to 24, that line is completely devoid of faith, completely devoid of believing people. It's a it's a godless descendancy. But God steps in in His grace and begins to do what is often done through history. He slowed down the degenerating path of mankind by uh, strengthening the believing remnant. Rekindling the believing remnant. Uh, Verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me. Instead of Abel, whom Cain killed, and as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Um, I think the reference here is made to public worship. It's not that there were no longer believers on the earth. Also because by all... um, Evidence uh, Eve was converted, Genesis 3, verse 15. Probably Adam too was converted. We know that Cain and Abel learned about the worship of God through them, but the worship of God dwindled down, almost disappeared. Because the tendency of mankind was towards degeneration. So God rekindled rekindles his remnant, reviving his testimony among humanity through Seth. In, in fact, if we read uh, the descendancy of, of Seth, we find several people of faith. We find Enoch, uh, who walked with God, we find Lamech, who prophesied, and we find Noah. Who surely found grace in the eyes of God, according to Genesis 6, verse 8. So that is the line where the testimony of God is maintained. That's where the remnant is found. But what happened to their remnant? What happened to that uh, descendancy? Well, (laughs) chapter 6, 1 and 2 speaks uh, about that. The sons of God are these. The sons of God are there to uh, comprise the people who hold on to the testimony of God, maintain the worship of God, carry on the message. Uh, But there's a compromise here. Uh, And so it is very interesting, it is very interesting that What happened in the days of Noah, in terms of judgment, did not really begin, this implosion, this moral implosion of mankind, didn't really begin with the world as it degenerates, because that certainly happens. What led to the collapse, the moral total collapse of humanity, is that... The salt lost its saltness, and the light lost lost its brightness. The people of God compromised, and those who were supposed to hold on to the testimony abandoned it. So we see this parallel. Genesis 6 concerning the judgment of God in the time of Noah begins with the degeneration happening among the professing people of God. In Matthew 24 the Lord tells us the same, that judgment, that that moral collapse, complete collapse that will take place at the very end of history will be initiated, uh, so, so to speak, by the apostasy within Christianity. Uh, why is this dynamic taking place? Why is it that when the remnant gives out and abandons the truth of God and degenerates, the, the, the world collapses morally? Uh, this is a very important question, and you would remember Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, we find a good answer to this important question in this scripture, when Isaiah himself says, "...unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah." You see that? Uh, Unless there is a believing remnant that influences spiritually, morally, the nation, the rest of the people. The rest of the people degenerate and become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Also end up like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what he's saying here so the existence of israel of unbelieving israel was maintained through history by this uh, the grace of god who um uh, Maintain the life of the remnant apart from which the world implodes in every way, degenerates in every way. So there is a, a moral, spiritual influence that the remnant exercises on, on the rest of humanity or society that is used by God to refrain or to um, keep the world from Degenerating to the utmost. Um, I know we talked about God's restraints in in our meetings. And this is certainly one of God's major restraints. How does God restrain evil in the world? Through the testimony of His people, of the remnant. Um... Let me go to a passage that's very important. I think very clear. Like in in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as such the passage doesn't seem to have much to do with what we are talking about and in some ways it doesn't. But uh, in another way it certainly does. You remember when Paul speaks about the fact that If you find yourself a believer, married to an unbeliever, Paul says, stay where you are. Don't abandon marriage. Um, Why? He says in verse 14, Because the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. Or... If is the male who is the Christian, the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Now what, what is Paul saying here is he's saying that you stay in the marriage because if you believe in Christ, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14 uh, if you if you believe in Christ and stay in the marriage your faith is going to count for us, for your mates as well you're saved and he's saved too because you're saved no Paul is not saying that <laughs> look at verse uh, 16 for how do you know oh wife whether you will save your husband or how do you know oh husband whether you will save your wife this is not Uh, a given fact. (laughs) This is not a matter of course. It could happen. It could not happen. So when Paul is talking about you stay in the marriage because that way your mate is sanctified. He's not saying your mate is saved through your faith. (laughs) Everyone must believe personally to be saved. But what he's saying that there will be an influence, a sanctifying influence, a moral, spiritual influence, that will be exercised, that God will use to speak to the conscience and perhaps, in the grace of God, convert the person. Your presence, your presence in that marriage, as hard as it may be, is important. Because it may very well be the main instrument that God will use to save the person. Who is, in any case, sanctified. In the sense, he's influenced for good by your presence. The same thing Paul says, if we go back to verse 14, about the children. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, will be immoral but now they are holy Uh, It's the same word for sanctified (laughs) so uh, what Paul is saying your presence will also be important for your children because your unbelieving husband may not be a good influence on your children but you may be you are to be otherwise how will your children grow up to be immoral but now they are sanctify they are influenced morally and spiritually by your presence so <clears throat> this is just one example of what we're talking about the moral spiritual influence that christian christians exercise whether in their home with unbelieving mates or unbelieving children. Whether in the church with unbelieving church members. <laughs> or whether in society as we uh, live, as we testify, as we speak the gospel. Uh, but now this individual influence that is spoken of here may be contemplated uh, collectively to It's not just that we influence those around us individually. We as uh, local bodies of churches and Christians as a whole in our society influence the humanity among which we live. So in in Matthew chapter 5, this is exactly what the Lord says. You would remember, I'm sure, uh, Matthew 5 and... Uh, verses 13 as the Lord speaks about those who believe in Him those who are the blessed of God He says, He identifies them in this way you are the salt of the earth what a privilege but also what a responsibility (laughs) Uh, salt is a preservant isn't it? it keeps things from going bad from degenerating And he says, what is relationship between you and the world? What are you doing in the world? Well, this is one of the main things that you are. Why God places you in the world. For you to be the salt, a preservant. Through the good influence that God can exercise through your testimony, through your life, and through the gospel that you share. Uh, In fact... Verse 14 speaks, tells us exactly how we preserve, <laughs> we, we can be used as preservants. <laughs> because you are the light of the world. It's through the light that you share, the light of the Gospel, that you share, that you can influence the world for good and exercise an influence that turns into a preservant with respect to the world. Uh, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp to put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You see? You see? <laughs> we, we are in a good influence on our society when we Make people aware of the reality of God, first of all. We rekindle that consciousness of God that the world does not want to have. We also exercise a good influence by reminding the world, society, even our politicians of the value of God's morals in every area of life. And thirdly, We exercise a good influence through the gospel, through the gospel, as people here are impacted, are converted. But notice, as we said, (laughs) this is a collective influence. When he says, You are. He's not speaking individually. He's saying you all, it's a plural in the original. So you all are the salt of the earth. You all collectively are the light of the world. (coughs) So what Paul said about the wife and the husband exercising their influence in the domestic life, internally in their own home, is true even in relationship about the the church itself as a whole, as it lives and testifies in the world. But again, you are the salt of the earth. You are the main instrument God uses to preserve the existence of the world. But if... Uh, Look at that. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is, it is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So that salt, that uh, remnant, can also uh, degenerate through in time, through regener- uh, through generations, <clears throat> and we see that all through history. Where are the churches that the apostles have founded? You know, Thessalonians and the Philippians and um, genuine works. There's no question about that. But where are they now? So the. The remnant, the testifying remnant, let me say for clarity's sake, the professing remnant may uh, degenerate to a point where it will no longer have any influence, any impact on our society. And when that happens, the, the evil begins to flood everywhere, go everywhere submerge everything spiritually, morally, uh, socially also politically in every way. Uh, And so I think these are passages that really help us to understand the connection between uh, the remnant that God maintains through history and the world even in spiritual, in moral and gospel terms. so we see this happening throughout history. God has maintained this humanity in existence because He's continually reawakened His work. <laughs> That's what revivals are about. That's what revivals are about. When everything seems to be dying, the Lord stepped in and rekindled the testimony of Himself through His people by saving larger multitudes, larger multitudes, so that these multitudes, really believing multitudes, could again in turn have a, a stronger influence on the world and to, to slow the march of evil that otherwise would have taken over completely. And He's done that that all the time through history, this uh, see, this is how we should consider re- revivals in terms in historical terms. Uh, but also, as we see in Matthew twenty four, this principle will hold true to the end, with the exception, as the Bible tells us, that there will come a time when God will no longer revive His work. He will cease giving revivals. He will let uh, the professing Christianity degenerate. He will not come back to us to rekindle the flame, to restore the testimony. And the remnant will become smaller and smaller and smaller. Just like Abraham says, Will you destroy the city if there are 50, 30, 20, 10? (laughs) And the Lord says, If there are 10, I will not. And the same principle holds true with the world. When the remnant in this world will become so small, so small, so small, that can hardly be seen, time will have come. For this Sodom and Gomorrah to be destroyed, God will not destroy it until the remnant is strong, is substantial, <laughs> it has an influence. But when the remnant will will dwindle down to almost nothing, time will have come to destroy humanity as it is, in complete rebellion against God. That's the moral principle by which God always acted in history, as we saw in the time of Noah, in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, with the Canaanites, with Israel, <coughs> and also with present humanity. will just be like that. Um, in Matthew 24, verse 36, that's exactly what we saw, didn't we? Um, when we read the passage, beginning 36 and then 37, 38, that's exactly what we see. It will happen in the, in the last days, in the very last days. It will happen just like it happened at the time of Noah. Now, of all the humanity at the time of Noah, how many knew the Lord? <laughs> it's a very, very lonesome word. <laughs> there in uh, Genesis 6, I think is verse uh, 7. All the humanity is corrupted, but Noah. But Noah found grace in the eyes of God. You see how small the remnant had become? The earth was full of violence. All of humanity had degenerated. Humanity must come to an end. The the principle is the same all the time. Uh, And this connects us again with another text we, we we considered. I trust this recapitulation in some ways will be helpful for some of those who were not here when I was here um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, um, you remember what Paul says. Some of the, Th- the Thessalonians thought that the Lord had already come. But somehow invisibly. (laughs) But Paul says in verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, that 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 day will not come unless the falling away, and let me add, of Christianity, because the word here is apostasy. Until the apostasy, the complete abandonment, comes first. Then the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. You see, this is is good because it gives us some signposts here. Uh, It has really become common, hasn't it, to say that Jesus could come at any time. Jesus could come at any time. Well, really not so. Not so. It says very clearly here, "Here, "...let no one deceive you by any means, for that day..." What day? Well, verse 1. "...the day of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. That day, when He comes to gather us with Him, will not come unless the falling away comes first. So, first there must be a falling away of professing Christianity, a general abandonment of the faith, a general uh, corrupting of the faith, then the appearance of the men of sin, the Antichrist, if you like, then after all the degeneration that will take place in our society during the Presence and the manifestation of the Antichrist, then the Lord comes back. Then the Lord comes back. The beautiful thing about connecting Scripture together like this, is that like Paul here just barely mentions the falling away of professing Christianity. What we find in Matthew 24, to which we go back now, is a description (laughs) of that very thing. What we find in Matthew 24 is a description, a rather detailed description, of this falling away of Christianity. Of this professing Christianity departing from the essence of the faith. Um... So, this is one aspect that must be really considered very carefully, therefore, and that's what we are trying to do in our meetings. We'll continue this evening uh, on this same subject, but for the moment, let us try to understand answer this question therefore in the light of Matthew 24 what are going to be the marks of Apostasizing Christianity as they are taught by the Lord Himself here. If we gather all the details that he, he gives us here, if we look to the meanings of the words, the roots, the root meanings of the words, and we, we bring it all together and compare it with other Scripture, uh, are we able to obtain a clear picture of the kind of, of the way in which professing Christianity will degenerate by the time the Lord Lord will return? Indeed we can. The main things, the main marks, the main characteristics of this um, apostatizing Christianity are very clearly spelled out here. We only have time to look at a few of them, but we will continue this evening. So what are the marks of this falling Uh, Degenerating Christianity. Uh, Let us begin with the first. Matthew 24 verse 5. For many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and will deceive many. The fact that he says they will come in my name makes it very clearly very clear that he's speaking of professing Christians. They come in his name. There's no question about that. What happens here? Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. In the original we have uh, the Ego A me. I am um, And as you know, uh, you know personal pronouns uh, in, in Greek can be let, left out, they are intended, uh, but we find it here for the sake of emphasis. I am. Then there's also the article in the original language, the Christ. It doesn't say I am a messiah of some sort, but I am the Christ. So this is a very strong statement, but the article means that it's also a very personal statement. (laughs) Uh, These many that will come will claim to be the very person of Christ. And well, you may ask the question then, then they're going to be Antichrist, in the place of Christ. Well, Indeed they are, but they do not put it that way. Because they will say, they will come in His name. They will come in His name saying, I am He. They will come in Jesus' name saying, I am the Christ. What sense does it make? It doesn't seem to make any sense, but it does. Because what all this means is that these people will come claiming to be the very person of Jesus who has returned personally to earth a second time. Not just another Messiah, not even just another reincarnation because there have been many through history. (laughs) Uh, But the very person of Jesus will come claiming to be The very person of Jesus, because they will come in His name saying, I am the Jesus that has come 2,000 years ago. I have come back. I have come back. That will be their claim. And uh, many. It says, many will come in my name. So, there's not going to be just one that will come and claim such a thing. But there will be many that will not just claim to be Messiahs, but many that will claim to be the only one. So, you see, there's confusion, there's conflict, there's contradiction. Which means there's gonna be a lot of fragmentation in all of these claims. There's gonna be a lot of Jesus is returned who are gonna have their followers, and that's what that's what the picture here looks like. Many, not just one. Multiplicity, contradiction, division, confusion. Uh, Then the text says this, and many will be deceived. Uh, the original says many will be misled. Misled is literally that way by this this uh, you know, pretended Christs. Um, and of course then we need to ask the question, how will it be possible for professing Christians to fall for such a thing how will it be possible well let me give you our uh, three thoughts here well in one way one can say it will be possible because we do not know the physical appearance of Jesus and since we don't know what he looked like <laughs> physically they will have an opportunity to say well I am He. <laughs> it's me. It is me. Uh, that's partly true, but you know there is one of these sects today. It's called the Church of the of God Omnipotent of Almighty God. It's a Chinese sect. Uh, uh, and uh, they do uh, it's growing, it's growing by leaps and bounds and they do claim that Jesus has returned into a person of a woman. She's now alive and she resides in United States for a change. Uh, but another thing to be considered is just what we read. For example, in verse 22 and 23. Unless those days... I'm sorry, also 21. For then there will be great tribulations such as not been since the beginning of the world until the, uh, this time. Nor, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh will be saved. But for the sake of the elects. Those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, Look, he is, he is Christ, uh, here is the Christ, or there... Do not believe it, for false Christ, pseudo Christ, and false prophets, pseudo prophets, will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. This is a very important passage because it does help us to understand. First of all, keep in mind the Great Tribulation. <laughs> A great tribulation will come. A crisis, a worldwide crisis, as this never been before, will come to the earth. What does that mean? It means that many, many people are going to be frightened, scared, alarmed, distressed, terrified. And because they will be terrified by the things that will be happening in the world, uh, they will be longing for the coming of some Jesus who will return to bring some peace to the earth and goodwill among men. These may be professing Christians who will be longing for the return of Jesus because they're so scared emotionally destabilized by other things that will happen in the world. But also, there may be many people that are not Christians, but they will still long for the coming of Jesus, or some Jesus that will restore some peace and goodwill among men. And uh, what I'm saying is that in the light of what happens throughout the chapters here, The wars and the rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom uh, uh, against kingdom, and the famines, and the pandemics, and the earthquakes. And all of these things that will happen, and especially the great tribulation, a crisis, a worldwide crisis as there never was or ever shall be, because of all that people will be so terrorized, so alarmed, so frightened that they will be in such a state of mind as to be uh, inclined, inclined to easily accept any claim that Jesus has come to restore peace in the world. No question all of these things will destabilize the earth and frightened and scared and terrified hundreds of millions of people, no question about it. And because of that fear, many will be liable to be deceived, vulnerable, impressionable, prone, ready, willing to accept some sort of Jesus. And that's how these sects will proliferate uh, at the very end of our history. And then we come to uh, the last point for this morning. Because again, we must ask the question, how is this possible? Especially in the light of the fact in the light of the fact that the Lord has told us all these things that are clearly written in his word, look at uh, verse four and five take heed that no one deceives you. There you go. He told us to be careful, for many will come in my name, saying, "I am the Christ and will deceive many. He told us, he warned us. Then look again, verse 21 through 25, we already read those things. If anywhere, uh, Verse uh, 23 especially, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or he is there, do not believe it. For there will be false Christs and false prophets who will arise and and do great signs and wonders as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. You see, it's written. It's clearly written. How is it possible that people can be deceived if it's clearly written? Again, look at verse 26 through 31. (laughs) Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert. Do not go there or look. He is in the inner room. Do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. When I return, I will be seen by everyone instantly. He says, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the Son of the Son, Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Everyone will see this instantly immediately so if they say oh he's hiding somewhere oh he's in Germany oh he's in America oh he's in Italy don't believe it (laughs) you will not be in need to be told you will see it with your own eyes everyone will see it with their own eyes no one will need to tell you that I'm coming now you see he clearly said it (laughs) He wrote it. He had it written in His Word. So how can people be deceived and believe the very contrary when things are so clearly written in His Word? Evidently because the kind of Christianity that we are going towards or perhaps we are already in is a Christianity that doesn't pay much attention to the Word of God. To what is written. Because anyone that would have a heart for what is written. In the written word of God. Would know. He said I already told you. And he's he's had it written down. So those that can be deceived. Well they are not the elect. We know that. As he says it. But evidently are those who. Don't have much care. For the word of God. They don't stick. the Word of God. They don't find it important to follow the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to understand the Word of God and follow it as a light in the night. What do they live by? What is their Christianity like? Well, in verse 11 it tells us, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. this is very interesting, because there certainly is a connection, (laughs) there certainly is a connection between this verse and verse 5. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Then verse 11, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Uh, And then verse 24, for false Christs, those spoken of in verse 5, and false prophets, those spoken of in verse 11, will arise. So, well, let us stop here. <laughs> uh, we consider the word false Christ. Let us think a moment, verse 11 and 24 false prophets. That's very important because it shows us that the sort of Christianity that will be just before the Lord returns will be characterized by many men that will claim great gifts, great gifts, who will claim to have the gift of prophecy as it is written. So they are moved by inspiration, pretended inspiration. They claim to hear the Word of God directly, the voice of God directly. Not through the Bible. Not through Scripture. It's direct revelation. They can hear the voice of God. They are the prophets of God. They are impressive men. Men of great charisma. And that's why they will be believed. There will be a, a lack of appreciation for the Word of God. There will be a devaluation of the Word of God, an abandonment of the Word of God, as it will be replaced by voices, the prophetic voices, men inspired by God, Great man of great charisma. Um, we don't have time, but I would, if you're taking any notes this morning, or in any case, be reminded of Second Timothy, chapter three, verse one through thirteen, all the way through seventeen, and then. chapter chapter 4, 1 through 5. In a few words, Paul says to Timothy, stay in the Word, preach the Word, do not abandon the Word of God, because many in the last days will turn to fables. Many in the last days will turn to fables. It it blends so clearly with what we're hearing here they go together they help us to see the picture of what will happen uh, another question why will they listen to them why they w- the, why will they give more credit to pretended prophets inspired by god rather than prophets that God has given in His Word and had it written down. Why? Well, verse 24 is important again. False prophets, false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so apparently miraculous as to deceive if possible even the elect. But you see, I've told you beforehand, be careful, watch, take heed. So, these men will not claim only the gift of prophecy, but the gift of healing, the gift of miracles. And that will use these apparent gifts to gain credit in the eyes of professing Christianity. And will deny credit to those who will not follow their voices and will not uh, accept their miracles as genuine, but will rather stick to the Word of God. It looks like to me that the Lord here depicts a sort of charismatic Christianity all over the place. You have the false Christ, you have these messianic figures, you have these men of great charisma that rise up and draw attention. You have the mega churches, uh, you have those who uh, claim to be prophets of God, to have inspiration. And you have also these miracles, supposed miracles of healing, great wonders, crusades of miracles. And we must ask ourselves a question as we even as we consider the meaning of this passage chronologically or historically. Are we in this today? Are we in this today? I would make a there is a distinction between Pentecostal Christianity and Charismatic Christianity. In the sense that Pentecostal Christianity. Uh, has its own theology. When you speak of you know, charismatism, then you think of uh, a mindset uh, and a certain attitude towards uh, this ecstatic gifts or miraculous gifts or revelatory gifts that has actually entered uh, all confessions of faith within uh, Christianity. You can find Charismatics, in Protestantism, in Roman Catholicism, and Eastern churches as well. You can find them everywhere. There are today in the world about 900 million Protestants. Do you know how many profess to be Pentecostals or Charismatics? 750 million. We we talk about the Pentecostalization of Evangelicalism. This, this movement has spread everywhere. And so many are given in to this orientation, There's this you know, charismatic orientation, that this thing is completely without precedent in history. We always had false messiahs, we always had false prophets, we always had mm, pretended workers of miracles, always throughout history. But there was never a time (laughs) when charismatic religion, based on uh, these sort of things, has conquered, generally, uh, Christianity as a whole. It's always been individuals or some small movements on the fringes of Christianity. What we have today is a global movement of charismatic nature, of of Pentecostal nature. And mind you, my my evaluation or my judgment is not concerning the individuals. (laughs) God knows the individuals and I'm sure there are many genuine Christians among Pentecostals. So, I do not want to be misunderstood. I'm talking about the movement as a whole and what is producing. What is producing. Uh, You know, Pentecostalism or Charismatism, God has used the movement, I'm sure, with His elect as He saw fit throughout the world. No question about that in my mind. But, as a movement... It has not it has not led us back to the word. Because of its emotionalism, because of its sentimentalism, because of its superstition, because of this tendency towards ecstatic, revelatory, miraculous visions and dreams and signs and wonders, it has really taken Christianity further away from the truth. From the Scripture. We have not seen a return to a strong, profound <laughs> uh, theology through this movement. And to me, apart from some of the other issues, this is the gravest issue concerning the Pentecostal charismatic movement. And has led to a greater departure and abandonment, a neglect of the Word of God. Um That is certainly true theologically there there can be no question about this uh, i 've met a good number of these dear people through the years. I remember years ago a, a dear couple came and you know professed to be Christians. They came from a Pentecostal church and a charismatic church and as I was talking to her. She, uh, I asked her, you know, about life and living and following the Lord, and, uh, and as we talked about Scripture, she said, "Oh, I don't read the Bible. I dream. You dream." And yeah, she dreamed. She dreamed all the time. And it really didn't matter what sort of dream she had. Anything that looked a little bit weird or out of sorts, she would interpret it as a sign from God. And she started coming to me and asking me, what What does this mean? You know, so I remember one day she came to me. I'm not joking here. And she said, I, I, I dreamt or I dreamed. I dreamed that I was out in the, in the kitchen, opened the window, and Italians have a way of, um, how do you say, Paul, hanging their clothes to dry outside of their windows in Italy. And so she said, these two birds came and took my, uh, my clothes away and took them to another line of another house. And put it there. Can you tell me what it means? It is a message from God, isn't it? And she said, said, "I, I think that God is telling us to leave our Pentecostal church and come to this church. You know, we need to be removed from here to there. From there to here. And our relationship sadly didn't last for long, um, but I did try. <laughs> I did try, but it didn't. It didn't work out. Uh, but this, um, I think, is what we are seeing here, um, and this opens up a great, great theme. Of course, the whole theme of the uh, ecstatic gifts, the revelatory gifts, the miraculous gifts, in their relationship to the Word of God. And it opens up the whole theme of the nature of theology in relation to Scripture. Theology is our understanding of the Word of God. But how is this to be maintained? What's the relationship between the two? Don't we run the risk of embracing a theology that has little to do with Scripture? How much is our theology to depend from the Holy Scripture? Uh, But let me go back to the point and we will finish here this morning. When we come back this evening we will enlarge. But the question is uh, historically, historically, Pentecostalism began 120 years ago. And in a matter of a few generations, has, has invaded almost all of Protestant Christianity, and has never happened before in the history of the Church, of the world. Never before. There is no question that we are witnessing something unprecedented: a worldwide reorientation of our faith in Pentecostal, charismatic. Um, Ways, terms. Is this a coincidence? This is how the Lord begins, Matthew twenty-four. This is the first problem. <laughs> this will be the tendency. Are we in it? Are we in it? If we are, it will help us perhaps perhaps to understand the, the basic problem of charismatic Christianity. Not the individual judgment, we already said that, but overall, and how uh, inimical really it is from the true message of the gospel. We live in difficult times. we must exercise a lot of judgment, we must be very careful. But I think it has become more difficult to really know how to deal with Christianity today than anything else. How do you relate to all that is happening? We know what the world is like. We know what the world is after, but what about all of this confusion and fragmentation and, and these all of these sorts of fables and, and falsities and what are we to do? May the Lord give us grace to be faithful to his word. Amen.